This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. This is a special edition, a Turkey Day Thanksgiving episode. So it's not just focus on serial killers this time. I opened the gates to just true crime in general. So today we'll be covering anybody who killed their family on Thanksgiving, or if there was just a ruckus, any kind of uh, criminal activity that happened around Thanksgiving. But first, let's get some stuff out of the way. Igor and I, Igor, of course, is my socially distant assistant. We are excited because we have some merch coming out. That's right. You can now have Murder Lab merch. I do have stickers already in hand. I have some other goodies on the way, magnets and t-shirts and such. So make sure you stay tuned to see how you can get those. Obviously, it's a little difficult right now to be out and about selling merch, but I am planning some events for next year when things settle down a little bit more. I have a live podcast in the works, but it won't just be like me sitting at a table for like an hour or whatever. There'll be some other fun surprises and stuff in there, so I will have merch available there. But in the meantime, I'll keep you updated on how you can get merch if you want it, which of course you know you do. Make sure that you keep track of the Facebook page, and you can always go to MurderLabMedia.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, and make sure you tell everybody. We do have a specific event that is putting some of our merch in their raffle baskets, which is the Mary Krampus in Columbus. But their event will actually be virtual with the loveliness that is COVID. They have gone virtual this year. So make sure you go to The Mary Krampus, and Krampus, of course, is spelled with a K, on Facebook. They also have a website. It is theroastedthumb.com. Theroastedthumb.com. They are one of the main sponsors. And again, I will post links on my Facebook page and the website and all that good stuff. So that, to clarify, their virtual event will begin at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, December 6th. And they'll be doing all kinds of stuff. So make sure you stay tuned to that. And they'll be having raffles and giveaways and taking donations for their local nonprofit, Colony Cats and Dogs. And if I have not already said, they are based out of Columbus. So make sure you check that out. You know, try to get on those uh, raffle prizes. They'll have some good stuff, including some Murder Lab merch in there. So this year, this year sucks in a lot of ways. And it is unfortunate that it is probably smartest and the safest to stay away from our loved ones, depending on whether we live with them or not. If you find yourself in a socially distant Thanksgiving where maybe you're home alone or there's just your main family and you can't see your extended family and you're bummed out, well, maybe this will make you feel better. I'm going to be talking about people who hurt their family members. So at least you don't have to worry about your family members hurting you because they can't come in the house. So there you go. You're spending it distant from them. <laughs> All of the information came from different websites. Igor supplied most of the information, and then as always, I verify things, and, and I add a little bit, and I put it in chronological order. So 1919 is where we shall begin. One of the oldest unsolved Thanksgiving murders occurred in Schenectady County, New York. A game protector for the county, John H. Woodruff, left his home on Thanksgiving Day. He was going to patrol the area, and he never returned. 
His body was found almost two years later, in April 1921, buried in a shallow grave near a creek bed. The top half of Woodruff's skull had been detached, indicating that he had been killed by a blow from a large object, possibly an axe. Woodrow's wife claimed that he had received, then destroyed, a threatening letter a few months before his disappearance, and a witness reported seeing Woodruff arguing with another man on the day in question. Woodruff and the man then walked off together into the woods. It was the last time anyone saw Woodruff alive. No suspect or motive was ever identified in Woodruff's case. After almost a hundred years, his murder has remained unsolved. So a dude leaves home, disappears, and then two years later, he's found in a shallow grave with the top half of his skull detached, as if being killed by an axe. Now we move forward to 1971. The only unsolved case of hijacking and air piracy in U.S. history happened the night before Thanksgiving in 1971. A guy called himself, calling himself Dan Cooper, later called DB by the media for unknown reasons, but the name stuck. He boarded Northwest Airlines flight number 305 in Portland bound for Seattle. Mid-flight, he revealed to the flight attendant that he had a bomb in his carry-on bag. And even he gave her a peek at it and then promptly conducted the politest hijacking ever. He got the plane to land in Seattle and demanded $200,000 in cash and two sets of parachutes. The airline and the FBI granted his wish. He released the passengers and then he had the flight crew go to Mexico City. He then sends a flight attendant to the cockpit for safety, puts on one of the parachutes, jumps out of the plane into legend. No trace of Cooper was ever found. However, some of the money he stole was recovered from a forest outside of Portland many years later, but the man himself remains a mystery to this day. He became a legend and a folk hero because of his boldness and polite demeanor. And the FBI basically gave up looking, it, looking for him, and they closed this case in 2009. The Thanksgiving Mystery of D.B. Cooper. Now, just a few years after that, in 1977, Thanksgiving Day, six-year-old Beth Lynn Barr was walking home from school in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, but she never arrived home to celebrate the holiday with her family. Her father happened to be a local cop, so the police immediately leapt into ap action and went looking for her, but she was never found. A witness later reported seeing Beth being carried to a blue sedan driven by an older white man, and the car was traced to a local rental agency. But the agency's records show that the car had not been loaned out that day. It was possible that the perpetrator had stolen the car and returned it to the agency before anyone noticed it was gone. Two years later, her skeletal remains were discovered in a shallow, unmarked grave near Monroe, Pennsylvania. She had been stabbed several times in the chest. Her killer remains at large, identity unknown. So it's interesting that in the very first one I mentioned, the guy went out, was missing and then was found two years later in a shallow grave. And in her same case, she went out and disappeared and they found her in a shallow grave. On to 1985, the Blount family of Lake Worth, Texas, were, were returning from a Thanksgiving outing when their 15-year-old daughter, Angela, found a briefcase on the porch of their mobile home. When opened, the briefcase exploded, killing Angela, her father, Joe, and her cousin, Michael Columbus. Ten years later, a man named Michael Tony was convicted of the crime, but his, but his conviction was overturned because the prosecution withheld evidence that contradicted witness testimony and exonerated Tony. Some have speculated that they weren't the intended targets of the mystery bomber and that the device was intended for one of their neighbors instead. Nonetheless, no further evidence has been produced in the case and no one knows what the hell happened. So that's fucked. 
she goes home, sees a suitcase, opens it, and then three people fucking die from an explosion. You know, we've got a lot of suitcases around our house and our porch. Now I'm going to be nervous about being around those. Now we fast forward to 2006. We have Asmaram and Tawadros Jabresalesi. They are aged 47 and 43 respectively, or they were in 2006. Three family members were killed on Thanksgiving Day because apparently they thought their in-law was responsible for the their 42-year-old brother Abraham's death earlier in the year. Asmaram and Tawadros' 42-year-old brother died. They believed his wife, Winta, schemed with other family to kill Abraham despite his death being ruled as natural causes by two doctors. So he had died in his home. Two doctors looked at him and said it was natural causes. But Asmaram was still convinced that Winta wanted the 500k life insurance or he was convinced that she was going to push Abraham out of the closet as a homosexual pedophile that was molesting his own son. He had confronted his family with these theories so many times, they said, fuck you, don't come to Thanksgiving. But Tawadros wasn't as confrontational about all of it with them, so he was allowed to come. At some point during that evening, Tawadros called Asmaron and led him in the apartment where he killed three people and injured a fourth. He shot and killed Winta Mahari, 28, her brother Jonas Mahari, 17, and the Mahari's mother, Regbe Barangazi, age 50. Yefron Mahari was shot and wounded, but he survived. Apparently, while the melee was going on, Tawadros grabbed his two-year-old nephew and ran away. Asmaram claimed self-defense, saying that one of the Mahari's brothers pulled out a gun first, but there was, no ever, there was never any evidence that this is actually what happened. Asmaram and Tawadros got three counts of murder, plus one count of kidnapping for taking Wintam Mahari's two-year-old son Isaac from the scene, and two counts of false imprisonment. When Asmaram got his three life terms, he told the judge, You are a criminal, sir, and you are an evil man. Tawadros got life without parole, but then his conviction was overturned in 2016. Now, a few years after that, in 2009, on November 26th, Thanksgiving Day, South Florida resident Paul Michael Merig, Merhigi, M E R H I G E, ate a hearty Thanksgiving meal with 16 family members and friends, conversing and joking and even joining in sing-alongs. After dinner, he whipped out a handgun and executed four relatives, including his cousin-in-law, his twin sisters, one of whom was pregnant, and his cousin's six-year-old daughter. Afterward, he reportedly said, I've waited 20 years to do this. According to the police, as the night wore on, things were going fine, and then... Paul left the house and then returned with a gun. Now, I know I just said that he whipped out a gun, so I'm not sure exactly if he just had the gun, but apparently, according to the police, he left and came back with a gun. Court documents say that he considered killing himself after the shootings. He even ordered an assisted suicide handbook in the days after the killing. He he ran away. He uh, also began loading up on supplies like helium, plastic bags, scissors, duct tape, and tubing, but he never followed through. And he was arrested about a month later in the Florida Keys when a tip was called in after an episode of America's Most Wanted highlighted the murders. He had been living off of $12,000 in cash he'd withdrawn before Thanksgiving, which underlined how premeditated his crime had been. He eventually cut a plea deal for seven consecutive life sentences to avoid the death penalty. There was some lawsuits involved with the family after that. 
Muriel and Jimmy Sitton were suing their cousins, Michael and Carol Marig, for inviting their son, Paul. Jimmy said that Paul's parents knew that he was dangerous, but didn't tell anybody that they were inviting him. Muriel said she hadn't seen him in 12 years. Supposedly, Carol told her daughter, Lisa, just days before the shooting that, quote, I hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. The Palm Beach Post described him as an estranged recluse who'd clashed with his sisters in the past and that one had even taken out a restraining order against him a few years prior. But everything seemed like it was going fine. I mean, like I said, they were singing together and stuff. But court records showed that in the weeks before the meal, he had painstakingly and discreetly spent $2,000 on at least four guns and ammunition. He even asked for a scope to be attached to a bolt-action Remington 700 rifle. Now, the lawsuit was eventually dismissed in 2012 because it was determined that Paul's parents had no legal right or ability to control the actions of their son. However, there was another suit filed Patrick Knight also sued his former in-laws for failing to prevent the killings, including the death of their daughter, his wife, Lisa. So they file a countersuit against the Sittens, saying that the Sittens were to blame for the bloodbath. So I don't know. Everybody was suing everybody. And frankly, I don't know, obviously, because I only see what's in these uh, articles and I wasn't I would hazard to guess that the parents probably had no ultimate control and I would think that even if they said don't come to Thanksgiving he could have just shown up and killed everybody anyway so I don't know why that necessarily be their fault I guess one of the people felt that the parents should have tried to jump in the way or try to save people but I mean you never know how you're going to react when something like that happens so I don't know it's just an unfortunate thing also in 2009, on the same day that all this stuff happened with Paul and his family, Ayalis Clay Oliver, 76, apparently was so angry about his 49-year-old son Keith Oliver and his refusal to help out around the house caused him to shoot his son. Apparently, the father and son have been arguing for hours, and then finally, Ayalis's wife Marjorie, Keith's mom, just said, Keith, just go ahead and go. And he refused. So the father went upstairs, retrieved a 357 caliber revolver, and shot him to death. The father was being held in the El Paso County Jail. Apparently, he shot his son once in the head and then sat on some steps in the house and waited for the cops to come. He told the detectives that he exchanged about five words with his son before shooting him and that he was quote-unquote pissed when he went for his gun. He confirmed that his son's final words, overheard by the mother, was that he was trying to stand up like a man, and for that, his father was going to shoot him. A detective said Oliver did not remember saying anything to his son before firing a shot. Another detective said that Oliver told them he was on heart medication and not under the influence of alcohol. He was not under any care for any psychiatric disorder. He's a former steel mill worker who had served in the military and still worked a daily job. He was paying rent and making car payments for his twin sons, one of whom was the shooting victim. Apparently, the cops had never been called to their home previously or knew of any other trouble involving the man and his son. So kids, just clean, clean some shit up. Just take the garbage out. It's just safer. Now we'll move to 2012. Hale Kiefer, age 18, and her cousin Nicholas Brady, age 17, broke into Byron David Smith, age 64, broke into his house, and he shot them, telling the cops he thought they might be armed. 
Apparently, he'd been burgled several times. He began wearing a holstered weapon and had surveillance around the property. He had captured the teens on video casing his home earlier in the day, so he saw Kiefer's car heading towards his home and he decided to wait for her. He got the recorder, removed the ceiling light bulbs, and sat in a chair so he wouldn't be seen. You can hear glass breaking on the audio, and that's when Brady climbed in. Smith waited 12 minutes until he went into the basement, shooting him twice on the stairs and once in the head after he fell. Smith then made remarks to the body and moved it to another room in a tarp. He then went back to the same position, and 10 to 15 minutes later when Kiefer came in and came down the basement stairs, he shot her and wounded her. As she falls down, Smith can be heard saying to her, Oh, sorry about that. As his gun jams, then you can hear her saying, Oh my god. Very quickly, when Smith shoots her in the body many times, then beside her left eye, all the while calling her denigrating names and dragging her into the same room as her cousin. He then threw her body on top of her cousin and shot her under the chin, finally killing her. All of that was recorded on audio and surveillance by him. It was all on his equipment. He didn't report the murders until the next day, saying he didn't want to bother the police on a holiday. That was, that was nice. That was thoughtful of him. This gets into him claiming that kind of the, what we know as the castle doctrine. So Minnesota law states that a person may use deadly force to prevent a felony from taking place in one's home or dwelling, but the level must be reasonable. Smith claimed he used reasonable force to protect his home, but the police and the prosecution argued that he set a trap for the two teens and then sat there waiting like a hunter waiting for prey. And he was also accused of going too far because he kept shooting them after they were no longer a threat. The biggest problem was the, the video recording that he had been made when you could hear him taunting the teens as they died. So he was convinced of, he was convicted of first degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was a retired security engineering officer with the U.S. State Department. There is a, another detail where the video from his surveillance cameras that day, it does show him moving his truck from the driveway to make it look like he wasn't home. And then about an hour, you can see the teens casing the place before they go in. The teens were unarmed. Smith had suspected those two had been responsible for some of the earlier break-ins. And they were also later suspected of a robbery of a retired school teacher that had occurred earlier that day. I mean, there are hours of audio recordings that document him just sitting there waiting until, you know, finally the glass breaks and then there's the confrontation. He does call Kiefer a bitch and says, cute. I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. After he shoots her for the final time under the chin, he whispers to himself, I refuse to live in fear. I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. I was doing my civic duty. I don't see them as human. I see them as vermin. He kept clinging to the castle doctrine. Just real fast, apparently the biggest difference between the stand your ground and self-defense is that the latter carries more burden on the accused to prove that they were not the instigator and that they made effort to retreat before determining that there was a reasonable threat. He also made the statement, if you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again. So that, that was how he could justify shooting them so many times. But they, again, they all felt that that was kind of excessive. Also in 2012... Shanika Alsup, age 27, was having a fight with her half-brother, Deontay Antonio Wallace, age 23. So they're fighting about the food, and she stabs him in the neck with a serving fork. As you would. He survived, thankfully, and she went to jail for first-degree assault, second-degree assault, and rec reckless endangerment. There's one source that said that she stabbed him several times. The officer responded to the incident reportedly found Wallace in the building's parking lot holding his neck. 
There were two stab wounds at the base of Wallace's neck. He was immediately taken to the hospital, naturally. And this is what boggles my mind. It says, at the time of her arrest, Alsup was being held on $1 million bond. That seems like a lot to me for a neck stab. And I know it's not great to stab someone in the neck, but that seems like, I don't know, is that normal? The, the only thing I can think of, maybe she had priors that would make that bond, or is that I'm not that familiar with the law? <laughs> if anybody else knows, let me know if that's a normal thing or if that depends on priors. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, maybe he told her the turkey was too dry. And I understand the impulse to want to hurt someone for complaining about your cooking or insulting your cooking. But let me just tell you, it's not worth it, especially when you have a million dollar fucking bond. Just saying. Something a little more lighthearted. In 2013, a game of Trivial Pursuit became cutthroat. Police in Port Matilda, Pennsylvania responded to a dispute in which one contestant grew so mad, he threatened another with a hatchet. But the hatchet actually turned out to be a piece of drug paraphernalia, and the person got arrested. So, thankfully, no one was hurt in this one. Apparently, they didn't use enough of the drug from the paraphernalia, or they used too much. So it's all about balance. I mean, it is trivial pursuit. It could be the Seinfeld moops thing. So maybe the card said moops, but it should be moors. He brought out a hatchet. Things get pretty serious. On Thanksgiving Day, 2013, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Jimmy Mulligan was carrying a turkey and stuffing while walking to a friend's house to celebrate. A thief approached him at gunpoint and robbed him. The 911 call went like this. They took my turkey. Somebody came up behind me pushed something in my back, told me to face the garage, give them my wallet, and let go of the plastic bag. The police 911 dispatcher Denny Vieira and responding officer Daniel Mendez, they went to a nearby Boston market and bought two turkey dinners and delivered them to Mulligan and his friend. Bridgeport Mayor Bill Finch thanked Vieira and the officers by stating, I can't say enough about the compassion and empathy shown by the men and women who work in the 911 center. It's a difficult job. When they answer the phone, they usually are speaking to someone in crisis. Denny did her job well, got police to the scene, and then thought, I want to do more. She and her colleagues rallied around this man and brightened his Thanksgiving. So there you go. There's something nice. A dude was robbed of his turkey, but the cops took care of him. Now, I am mentioning one serial killer. There is the smiley face killer theory. So it claims that a cabal of serial murderers is operating across the United States, targeting white male college students, dumping their bodies in rivers, lakes, or ponds to erase the evidence, and drawing smiley faces at the dump sites in order to taunt police. They're usually written off as drunken drownings, but proponents of the theory said there are remarkable similarities that can't be accounted for by mere chance. One of the smiley faces possible victims was Shane Montgomery, a Westchester University student who disappeared from the streets of Philadelphia during Thanksgiving holiday in, holiday in 2014. His body was discovered several days later in the Schuylkill River, and his death was ruled an accidental drowning by the medical examiner. But the circumstances of his death who he met with after leaving the bar, after 2 a.m., 
how he wound up in the river to begin with, remain shrouded in mystery. Those of you, it's always sunny fans. I'm sure when I said Schuylkill River, you immediately thought of uh, Frank trying to give that poor tour group a tour of <laughs> the Schuylkill River. <laughs> All right, just a few more to go. We're in 2015 now. Around 1 o'clock a.m. on Thanksgiving Day, an unidentified 38-year-old Muslim cab driver picked up a fare outside of a casino in Pittsburgh. The customer asked where the driver was from, and the driver said, I'm from Morocco, but I'm an American guy. The passenger reportedly then talked at length about ISIS, prompting the driver to say, quote, actually, I'm against ISIS. I don't like them. The passenger allegedly then mocked Islam for the duration of the ride. After arriving at his destination, the passenger went into a residence and returned with a shotgun. The driver sped away, but the passenger fired and hit him in the upper back. The driver survived his serious wounds and said, I quote, In our religion, Islam, we forgive even in such conditions. I could forgive this, but I still want my rights. Thankfully, thankfully, we have another example of someone that got wounded but survived. So that's good that they survived, and it's shitty that he was shot. The last one that I have is from 2018. Knoxville, Tennessee. Joel Guy Jr. attacked his parents after they told him they were cutting him off. He was 28, never had a job, and been taking college courses for 10 years. They were ready to retire, and they were just done supporting him. His mom went to the shop, and he ambushed his father. And then when she came home, he killed her. He later dismembered them and tried to dissolve their parts in chemicals and then stashed those items around the home. So not sure why you would stash them around the home if you're trying to get rid of evidence. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe you figured if it's dissolved, that would be good enough. A five-page murder plan was found in the room he was staying in that outlined every step, including his motive, life insurance. He actually drained his parents' accounts for his rent and tuition after their murders while he was waiting to get their life insurance. Joel Guy Sr. had 40, quote, sharp force injuries, and the mother Lisa Guy had more than 31. Her head was removed and put into a pot of boiling water on the stove. Limbs were severed and placed in large plastic storage containers along with a torso and filled with various chemicals he was hoping would cause everything to dissolve. He was found guilty of first-degree murder. The murders actually happened in 2016, and he was convicted in 2018. His dad had been 61, his mom was 55. In that five-page document, it did also give precise details on how to commit the slayings, how to dismember the bodies, how to dissolve the bones, and how much he would profit from his parents' life insurance. The bodies were found when Lisa failed to show up for work on Monday morning. They alleged that Joel had begun plotting his parents' killings as early as November 7th, and then he started going to the store to buy things like knives, chemicals, plastic sheeting, plastic bins, and other items. The proof has shown us that this began 19 days before the homicides took place. He was going to torch the home, but he wasn't able to go through with it because he had suffered slices to his hands in his struggle with his father. And what did he do? He... After he killed his parents, he went to Walmart to attend to his wounds. There is video footage of Guy purchasing first aid supplies. 
So we went through people who disappeared on Thanksgiving, wound up dead. Some people were stabbed in the neck or shot at and survived. Some people killed members of their families. So all in all, spending a holiday away from your family doesn't sound so bad this year, does it? Seriously, though, I understand that it's really hard. I know I'm making light of it and being goofy, but I know that it's hard for people this year. And I understand that not everyone agrees with staying away from their families. But just keep in mind, this is for a temporary time. It's temporary. So before you know it, it'll be Thanksgiving again. We'll be able to be back with our loved ones. And I know that it's hard, but just stick through it a little bit longer. Do what you need to do to get through it in a healthy way. <laughs> yeah, don't Please don't stab anyone in the neck. Don't do anything rash. But seriously, if, you, if you're feeling depressed... If it's hard for you to be alone, if it's hard for you to be without your family, give them a call. You can FaceTime, whatever you need to do. Talk to friends. If it's really bad, there are all kinds of hotlines you can call. It's very important to take care of your mental health. Take care of yourself. Get some physical activity. Just do something little. If you just do a couple, a few little things that make you feel better, do those things. Even if they might seem silly to someone else, just do what you need to do to be healthy in this difficult time period. And just try to keep in mind, this too shall pass. We will get through this and we'll be able to be together next next Thanksgiving. To end on a lighter note, I was recently reading a book about Joel Rifkin and when the police asked him how he knew how to dismember bodies, he says, and I quote, I assumed it was like a Thanksgiving bird. So there you go. Serial Killing 101, Practical Applications, Dismembering Bodies Like a Turkey. I'd like to take a moment and thank Igor, as always, for not only assisting me with research, but helping me stay sane and being my cheerleader, helping out immensely with merch. We're really excited about the merch coming out. Please stay tuned. We've got the Facebook page, Instagram, Murder Lab, the website, murderlabmedia.com. Make sure that you go there, you like what you need to like, you share, share, share. Make sure you share the love with everyone. Stay tuned. Make sure you uh, subscribe so you find out whenever we get new episodes and sitch. The next episode will be about the benders and the beans to keep on going with the Families That Murder Together series. There will only be one more in the series after that coming out in January. There'll be the benders and the beans and then there'll be a special episode. Remember, you can find us on iTunes and Google Play. The RSS feed is available at murderlabmedia.com, so you can plug that in and listen to it on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for entering the lab. It's just safe.